0: Roy, Clark said, can you imagine how your kids would've felt if when you got to Florida, it was closed? (laughs) Uh, They don't close Florida, said Roy. You might remember that closing scene from the 1983 film National Lampoon's Vacation, when Clark W. Griswold tries to explain to Roy Wally, a stand-in for Walt Disney, why he had gone a little haywire. At the end of their family's harrowing cross-country road trip, they arrived at Wally World to find that it was closed for two weeks for cleaning and repairs. So Clark did what any of us would do. He took a BB gun that looked like a pistol, and he kidnapped one of the security guards and forced him to let his family ride on all the rides, even though the park was closed. You know the inevitable happened. They were arrested, and while in handcuffs, in an attempt to garner some sympathy from Roy Wally, Clark asked him to imagine how he and his family, including seven children, how they would have reacted if, after their own cross-country trip, they had come to Florida to find it closed. But they don't close Florida. Imagine. Imagine. Imagine walking all the way from Galilee to Jerusalem, 65 miles uphill. But when you got to the temple to offer the appointed sacrifices, you found that some fanatical rabbi had chased all the money changers and all the livestock sellers out of the temple precincts. Imagine coming all that way to do the thing that God had commanded you to do only to discover that the temple was effectively closed. When Jesus braided together that whip of cords and chased the people and the livestock out of the temple grounds, Jesus was effectively canceling worship in that place by pouring out the coins and turning over the money changers tables Jesus was grinding to a halt the religious system that was at the heart of God's people's lives. Worshippers weren't allowed to use just any coins to make their offering in the temple they had to exchange their Roman currency for Jewish coins that although worthless in the marketplace, was acceptable at the temple because they didn't have the emperor's graven image on them. And those people, when they came to the temple, they were counting on the livestock sellers to provide them the animals that they needed in order to make their sacrifices. After all, Who wants to ride in the back seat of a station wagon all the way across the country with a goat between your legs? One of the mistakes we make when we hear this passage is to imagine that Jesus was interrupting this temple worship because something was fundamentally flawed with what happened in the temple. And as Christians, we are quick to substitute our own understanding of worship and our own understanding of sacrifice into that thing that Jesus seems to be protesting. But if that's what we think Jesus had in mind, if, if this is what we think Jesus had in mind, then we're guilty of a pretty shallow reading of the New Testament. We're guilty of perpetuating those anti-Judaic and anti-Semitic interpretations of God's word that just don't stand up. But maybe more important than that, we're also guilty of ignoring what this moment from the Bible has to tell us about our need to reform our own worship. Jesus's prophetic action was a Jewish correction for Jewish worship. It's hard to sift through all the early Christian influences that have shaped the New Testament text as we find it today, but it's pretty clear that if you dig deep into it, we can tell that the thing that made Jesus so angry that day was the people's tendency to confuse the economic practices and the religious rituals. Take these things out of here. Jesus declared as he chased the livestock from the temple courts, Stop making my father's house a marketplace. Or literally, stop making the house of my father the house of an emporium. Somehow those practices that were supposed to support temple worship had become an impediment to it. And since we know that the livestock exchange, the currency exchange, since we know that they were necessary for what happened inside, we begin to wonder what Jesus took issue with after all. Maybe, maybe it was the fact that the merchants and the moneta- monetary exchangers were charging exorbitant prices or exchange rates that prevented ordinary people from taking part in temple worship. Or Maybe it's that the convenience of knowing that you could get whatever sacrifice you needed at the door had somehow displaced the connection that's supposed to exist between the offerings that we bring and the hearts that we present to God. But whatever it was, Jesus was taking issue not with the worship that was happening in the temple, but with the system of trade that had evolved to support it. And so by interfering with that system, Jesus had forced God's people to stop and think about why it was they had come to the temple in the first place. He forced them to stop and think about how it was that they would accomplish that thing that they had come to the temple to do. Imagine if someone came and stood at the doors of your church and declared that no worship would happen in this place for a whole year. Imagine if someone came and took all the communion wafers and all the communion wine away. Imagine if someone took all the prayer books and the hymnals out of the pews. Imagine if someone declared that the congregation is no longer allowed to sing Imagine if someone forbade the passing of the alms basin or the passing of the peace. What would happen? What would happen if someone came and took away all that stuff that helps make worship happen in this place? How in the world would we have a meaningful, transformative encounter with Almighty God if all those things that we depend on to have that encounter were taken away from us? For 52 weeks, we've had to look for God in places and in ways that we never could have imagined. Some of us have been more successful at that than others. And many of us who can't come back to church yet are still having to do just that. But on this first Sunday when people are back, on this first Sunday in a year, When you're sitting in the pews, we have to stop and think about why it is that we come into this holy place. We must stop and consider all those things that we have learned about what it means to look for God. Those things that we've learned over these last 12 months. Because if we don't stop and think about them We'll simply build everything back just the way it was without stopping to listen to what Jesus is trying to teach us today. What does it mean to worship God at St. Paul's Episcopal Church? What is it that we come to do here every week? Over the last year, what are the things that you have missed the most? What can the worship that we share in this place every week, what can it give us that we can't find anywhere else? I promise it's not the communion wafer or the cheap port wine or those uncomfortable wooden pews. And it's not the choir or the sermon or the stained glass windows. It's what all of those things are supposed to help us find right here. It's what that little piece of bread is all about. It's what we cannot experience on the other side of a screen. It's what all of us would willingly sacrifice a lazy, carefree Sunday morning for without any hesitation. It's that life-giving, life-changing encounter with God that we can only have when we have it together. God is with us when we worship from home, absolutely and without question. God is with us when we go for a walk, or when we sleep in late, or when we play a round of golf on Sunday morning. But there's something different about meeting God in that place where everyone is welcome, whoever they are, and wherever they are on their pilgrimage of faith. We gather together in this place to have communion with God, but also to have it with one another. And that communion is not defined the way we define the table fellowship around our family's dining room table, nor is it defined by the membership in an exclusive club. Here, everyone is welcome. And when we are together at God's table, we encounter the one who loves all of us unconditionally. And when we have that encounter alongside all sorts and conditions of humanity, that encounter has the power to shape us into a people who love the world the exact same way. Until we can all come back, therefore, this encounter will remain incomplete. Until these pews are full, and not just full of people, but full of anyone and everyone who wants to be here, until that happens, we cannot experience the full power of Holy Communion. So let's resist the temptation to hurry up and put everything back just the way it was. Let's hold off long enough to remember that we're not here simply to say our prayers or to get a piece of Holy Bread we are here to meet God and to meet God together. How many of those things that we have had to let go of over these last 12 months? How many of those things help us do that? Let's not confuse those things for the reality to which they are pointing us, a reality that is not complete until we are all back together again. Otherwise, We forget why being in this place really matters.